with me and open it up to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in the New Testament. We've been working our way through Luke's Gospel for quite a while now, and we find ourselves in the middle of the 16th chapter, which happens to be sandwiched between two different parables about rich men. In Luke chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus began the parable there, talking about a rich man that had a manager. And we'll find next week, and actually probably the far the next week after that when we get to it, but Jesus begins the second parable that he teaches in verse 19 about a rich man who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And so the recurring theme that we find in this chapter is on wealth. And for more importantly, for us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, is how the use or the abuse of wealth is an indicator as to whether a man or woman is in the right relationship to the things of God. Jesus, in so many words, declared that our faithfulness in the little things and our faithfulness as stewards with our money and our resources is indeed an accurate spiritual barometer. And what it came down to in a nutshell is this. Do we love the world and we use the Lord, or do we love the Lord and use the world? Because as we concluded our text last week in verse 13, Jesus taught us this axiomatic truth that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Either the object of your devotion will lie squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, or it will lie in something else which amounts to nothing short of idolatry. You will either love Christ, or you will love money. You will either pursue Christ, or you will pursue money. You will either treasure Christ, or you will treasure money. In other words, divided loyalties are prohibited in our lives. And this teaching really should not come as a surprise to us, because Jesus has taught on divided loyalties before, and he has never set the bar for discipleship low at all. Back in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, Jesus said that if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then farther down in verse 33, Jesus said, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. In other words, nothing should be cling to, nothing should be cherished, and there should be no greater commitment in your life than your commitment to Jesus Christ. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Now, although Jesus had been primarily directing this teaching towards the disciples, we find in our text today that the Pharisees were not far off, but they were in fact within earshot of him. And they heard everything he had to say. And so right in the middle of Jesus' speaking, we find the reaction of the Pharisees to this teaching 
which we find in our text today. So, I want us to read this this morning so that we have it upon our hearts and minds. If you're there with me in Luke chapter 16, we're going to actually begin reading in verse 13, but I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your holy word, and we know that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so, Father, we would ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your truth. We pray that you would empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in it in obedience for our good and for your glory. Sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. We ask all these things in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The entirety of the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to interpreting the Bible, one of the main things that you want to do is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, He is expected. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is anticipated to return. And so if you were to boil it all down, that's what the Bible is all about. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. In Genesis 1.1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know from John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then on the other side of the spectrum, in the last verse in the, book of the, in the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 21, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And so Jesus Christ really forms the bookends of the entire Bible. And therefore, we can rightly say 
that's sitting in the back of the pew there before you in your seat there, we have nothing in this church but hymn books. It's all about Him. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to try to understand exactly who Jesus Christ is, the Old Testament and even the law is part and parcel of that process. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus is simply not a New Testament phenomenon. For example, in Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the reigning king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken wall. In Esther, he is the Mordecai. In Job, he is the ever-living redeemer. In the Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is the true lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the eternal husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the Savior. In Jonah, he is the great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened in the house of David for sin and for cleansing. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. Jesus Christ is the theme of the Old Testament, and it all continually points to him. It's like this illustration that I gave many, many years ago when you got off on Broad Street on the west side of Columbus, just off of I-270 South. There used to be a Holiday Inn that sat there uh, where Home Depot now sits. But back in the 1970s and the 1980s, there was this huge 20-foot tall sign for the Holiday Inn with neon lights, and it probably had over 200 light bulbs in it. And the arrow would light up from the bottom, from the base of this sign, little by little, cutting over to the curve at the top and the sign until it was completely lit up with that arrow pointing to you to the hotel. And you could barely look at it because it was so brilliant and so bright upon your eyes. That's what the Old Testament does for Jesus Christ. Little by little, 
It lights up and points to Jesus until he's blazingly obvious that he is the expected one or the long-awaited Messiah. In order for us to have a complete and a robust Christology, we must know Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Old Testament. But even the law, the law itself has a purpose in that it too is our tutor to lead us to Christ, as Galatians 3.24 tells us. In other words, the law of God is, to, is designed to bring the sinner to ruin and show him that his sinfulness of his sin is so bad that a holy God must judge it. And, but there is a huge problem, and that is that the law is powerless to make anyone right with God. It can't justify, but it can only condemn. It can't make a person righteous, but it can only lock us up in the prison of sin. And so by showing us that it can, cannot save us, it drives us to look for a Savior. In other words, the law is like a mirror, and it shows us that our face is dirty, and it drives us to look to go to someone for cleansing. It shows us that we need a sacrifice for our sins in order to have a right standing before God. Because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission of sin. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 through 14, tells us about Jesus Christ when it says this, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The law was kept perfectly by Christ. We call that in theological terms his active obedience. And all of its penalties against God's sinful people was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness, but Jesus Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. And so, the whole doctrine of justification by faith, the whole doctrine of salvation by grace, rests on the principle that the law of God has been fulfilled by Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And now the merit by which we are justified, the merit which you and I have received a right standing before God, belongs properly and exclusively to Jesus Christ our Lord. And you and I, we apprehend that merit by faith and faith alone. So much so that if you were a repentant thief hanging on a cross beside Jesus Christ, and you could never perform any good works because death was on your doorstep, your faith in Jesus Christ would sweep you away into paradise with Him that very day. That's good news this morning. That is great news this morning. But this is exactly where the Pharisees fall short. 
They thought with all of their thousands upon thousands of man-made regulations and their attempts at keeping all the minutiae of the details that they had created, they thought that they had a right standing before God. Because I want you to think about this. There are some 613 commandments in the Torah itself. That's the law of God as revealed by Moses in the first five books of the Bible. But by the time the lawyers of the Pharisees got a hold of it, and they started adding their own interpretations of the Torah, and how it's practically practically to be lived out, there ended up being some 6,000 additional regulations, laws, and ordinances for you to live by. It's almost as the same people who wrote the Mishnah came along and wrote the U.S. tax code. The Mishnah, as it's called, is this massive, massive burden on the people. And yet the Pharisees played fast and free with the Word of God, and they neglected the weightier things of the law, and they dabbled in what they wanted, and they cast aside what they didn't. They thought to themselves that they were the great upholders of the law. But Jesus comes along and he tells them that if they actually knew and believed and understood the law rightly, they would see that it actually reveals something about their hearts. And that's why you have this seemingly strange discussion in this text about the law all of a sudden. And what seems to be on the surface to be this obscure reference to marriage and adultery. It's not Jesus that's undermining the law, but it's the Pharisees that are undermining the law by their lives in regards to both money and marriage. So first of all, look at verse 14 with me, when it says this, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Now, as Jesus is teaching his disciples about the priorities for the kingdom, the Pharisees are nearby and listening to what he is saying. And for them, and they're listening to him teach, this is too much for them to handle. This is like them trying to drink water from a fire hose, and they can't take it anymore. This teaching had hit them where it hurts the most, and that is right squarely in their wallets. But they don't challenge him openly in front of the people because that would actually reveal who they truly were. They were money grubbers. And they believed, much like the false prosperity teachers of our day, that material prosperity was a status sign and a validation from God of spiritual success. As far as they were concerned, if you wanted to see if God was pleased with you or not, just look at your annual income. Just recently a prosperity teacher in Texas, built his followers over the period of five years or so for money in order to buy a Gulfstream 5 Learjet to the tune of $17.5 million in which they paid cash for it so that this false teacher could take and supposedly minister all over the world. He couldn't take commercial flights because it was too burdensome for his precious time, and supposedly it couldn't get him where he needed to go in a timely fashion. But now, they've got this jet, they're starting a new campaign to raise $2.5 million in order to renovate the interior of this plane for avionics and and to be more used for international travel. $2.5 million dollars. But everything is predicated on you giving your money now 
so that at the amount of money, that the, the gift that you give, He will pray for you, bless you, and somehow, exponentially, that will be multiplied by God, and you will be given prosperity yourself. And it's all a ruse, and it's all a manipulation, because this guy loves money just as much as the Pharisees. But he's not done there. He also needs to build a new hangar, because it doesn't fit in his current one. And the runway that he has on his personal property his 1,500-acre property, and his $6 million lakefront home is not long enough for this jet to land. So if you want to be a seed partner, you can contact him. But it says here that the Pharisees and their love of money, as we see from day to day, is alive and well. But it says that as they were listening to Jesus, they were scoffing at him. And this word for scoffing is the same that's used in Luke 23, 20, or 35, rather, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and it said, and the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. It means to turn up your nose, or to hold in contempt, or look at in derision. But Jesus sees right through them. He says to them in verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Our sinful impulses of justification go all the way back to the garden of of Eden where Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up from one another and hide from God. Or even when Moses came down from the mountain when he was receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 32, and all the people were rebelling against God, and Moses comes down and asks Aaron why in the world he made a golden calf for the people to worship. And he gave one of the lamest excuses in the entire Bible trying to justify himself when he said in verse 23, He said, for they said to me, make a God for uh, who will go before us for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has come of him. I said to him, them, whoever has gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) But the truth of the matter for the Pharisees is that self-justification is never a cover for a deeper spiritual Problem. It was only, rather, a cover for a deeper spiritual problem. And so Jesus is beginning to peel back the layers of their self-deception and show them that their love of money was connected to a deeper problem. And that was their hearts. Because he tells them, God knows your hearts. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that nothing is hidden from the all-watchful eye of God. Nothing is hidden from His sight, especially even in our hearts. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isaiah 29, verse 13 It says, this people draw near to me uh, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Hebrews 4.13 tells us that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
And that's every bit as true for us today as well. God knows what is inside your heart. You may be sitting there looking good on a Sunday morning in church, but you may have your arms crossed inside your heart. God knows the sinful acts of rebellion that we've committed this week. God knows the sins that we are longing to commit as long as we can get away from our parents or get away from our spouse, if we get the chance. God knows the secret murmurings we do when we come face to face with discouragements. God knows the animosity that we harbor towards another brother or sister in Christ. God knows the self-pity that we are harboring about ourselves. God heard the gossip that you whispered into that other person's ear. God knows how you feel superior to some other person that you know. God knows how deceptively we portrayed ourselves, whether on social media or in the public. Nothing is hidden from the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. And the only right response from you is confession and repentance. Samuel Ainsley, a Puritan pastor from the 1600s, counseled us like this. He said, Take heed of every sin and do not count any as small. Renew repentance every day. Being serious and frequent in heart examination. Live as under God's eye. All things are bare before Him. Be much in secret prayer. Consider every action as a part of your life purpose. Enjoy Christ more and entertain good thoughts of God. Whatever you do, do it out of the love for God. And so the important question for your and my life is not what other people may think about us, but what God thinks about us. But what Jesus is addressing with the Pharisees here is that the love of money is actually a big deal to God. It's not just some small moral failing that is much farther down on the list of possible sins you could commit, like blasphemy or adultery. But according to Jesus, the love of money is a betrayal of our love for God that pits us squarely against the gospel of salvation and the kingdom of God. Because Jesus goes on, and he says, For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And this word, detestable, here could be read that it is an abomination before God. It's a foul thing before God. It's a, it's a strong term of rejection. It's like in the, to that of an idol. An abomination is anything that is disgusting to God. Many Christians think that, you know what, an abomination is only something that an unbeliever or an unrepentant sinner does. But in the context of Luke 16, what Jesus is addressing is those who are supposedly religious and devout in their faith. Because what could possibly be more disgusting to God than for someone who claims to love God and to follow God, but in reality, they only serve God? themselves. Beloved, this is probably one of the biggest things that kept me from the faith in the 1980s and the 1990s. I looked at Jim Baker on TV. 
I saw how he was bilking people of money. I, I saw how he lied to them and, and, uh, for money so he could build his empire. And I thought to myself, if that is the measure of righteousness that I need to have, if that's what a Christian is supposed to look like, then I'm good to go. I'm not that bad. But it was only when I got a Bible for my own and I read the law of God and I saw that his righteous standard was set way higher than anybody that I'd ever seen and how only Jesus Christ could meet that standard. That is when I could cast myself upon him for salvation. R. Kit Hughes said this, We can externally do all the right and religious things, but we will ultimately impart that which is within ourselves. The people around us will see the artificiality, the affectedness, the elitism, the anger, the hostility, the hatred, the suspicion, the sourness, the inner blasphemies. We will leave our fingerprints on each other's souls, either for Christ or for unbelief. What impact are you making on the people around you? What comes out of your heart and manifests it to those who are lost and dying in this world? Do they see someone who loves God and then wants to glorify them, glorify Him with their lives? Or do they see somebody who's really in love with the world and playing a part? God finds all forms of false religion that is elevated among men to be detestable and an abomination. J.C. Ryle said of this passage is, the truth of this solemn saying of Jesus appears on every side of us. We have only to look around the world and mark the things of which most people set their affections to see what Jesus says proved a hundred ways. Riches, Honor, rank, pleasure, these are the chief objects for which the greater part of mankind are living. Yet these are the very things which God declares to be empty and vanity. And the love of them, he warns us to beware. Praying, Bible reading, holy living, repentance and faith and grace and communion with God, these are the things for which Few people care at all. And yet, these are the things which God in His Bible is ever urging upon us for our attention. The disagreement between these two things is glaring. It's painful and appalling. What God calls good, we call evil. What God calls evil, we call good. But the more entirely we are of one mind with God as to what He calls good, the better that we are prepared for the day of judgment. To love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to approve what God approves. This is the highest style of Christianity. The moment that we find ourselves honoring anything which is in the sight of God is lightly esteemed, we may be sure that there is something wrong within our souls. In case you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm just too great of a hypocrite. I want you to listen to Charles Spurgeon, what he said in regards to this. He said, Oh, my friends, I feel that in speaking of the hypocrite, I have tried to speak in a direct and stern manner, but I have not been able to reach the heart as I wished. Because it is a mark of human nature 
that this is the last sin of which we really suspect ourselves, and yet one into which it is most easy to fall. I am often on my knees in agony of doubt and cry out, Lord, make me sincere, and if I am deceived, undeceive me. I don't think that any Christian will live long without some such seasons of anguishing self-examination. And so for this morning, we have to stop there because we have to look at what Jesus says about the law in the next few verses. And I think we need to slow down and understand what Jesus is saying because there is a lot of confusion going around right now about the law of God. And we're going to talk about the rise of this Hebrew roots movement and some other things that are even sweeping into our area of Marysville. And so I want to make sure that you are armed with the truth from God's Word so that you don't fall into its errors. And we simply don't have time to go into all that this morning. But beloved, I want to ask you, are you fully resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is there something in your life that you've elevated over and above your pursuit of Jesus Christ? Have you taken the time As we've looked at uh, chapter 16, have you evaluated your heart in regards to your money and to your love for God? Let me close with J.C. Ryle one more time. He said, the more entirely we are of one mind with God, the better we are prepared for judgment day. To love what God loves, to hate what He hates, to approve what He approves is the highest style of Christianity. The moment we find ourselves honoring anything which is in the sight of God, lightly esteemed, we may be assured that there is something wrong with our souls. If you evaluate your heart, if you look at your heart this morning, no one can see it but you and God alone. Do you find yourself more in love with the things of this world than you do the things of God? What are the things that you commit your time to? your attention, your money. If you are not in God's Word, if you are not in prayer to God, if you're not having sweet times of communion with God, you need to pray and ask Him for a repentant heart and confess your sin before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We've seemed like we've only scratched the surface of what you have to say to us here, Lord. And yet, there is a weightiness to what is here. Father, I pray for myself and for all that are here this morning, Lord, that we would earnestly look at our hearts and see if we are entangled more into the things of this world or if we are diligently, earnestly, passionately pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us a full heart for you. Help us to look at the things of this world and cast them far away from us and help us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Matt, for the word. Uh, now's the time for our fellowship meal. If you're visiting with us, um, please join us.
of the time we uh, eat together, fellowship, and get to know you better. So if you would like to, you don't didn't have to bring food, it's perfectly fine, we'll have enough. So please join us for that time, and uh, let's pray for that. Father, thank you for your truth that's so precious. Thank you for uh, just your word that can uh, help reveal our hearts where we've fallen in a sin. Like Matt said, will you, uh, will you please give us repentant hearts? Increase our faith and repentance. Lord, you bless this time as we come together, as we eat and we can enjoy uh, the things we have on this earth, the foods and the relationships in this body we have here. In Christ's precious name, amen. Dismissed. This is